Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Today, we get into more pricing nitty-gritty with Jeff Gorman. How pricing in P3L, the paperless parts pricing engine, gets updated in such areas as new shop rates, material prices, plating defaults, etc. Prices are not static and should be updated. We compare how you would do this in spreadsheets and ERP systems, and then talk about what tables are and how to use them, where they're used in paperless, and then using them to update prices in bulk. This is very useful if you have lots of changes and want to do it frequently. Very cool and amazing because updating lots of prices is hard, and therefore people don't update prices often enough, but remove the friction and make it easy. What happens? If it's easy, prices get updated more often. For instance, what about everyday updating shop rates depending upon your current capacity? We actually did this at Rapid. As you listen, think about what is possible when things are easy instead of hard. Finally, we touch upon user permissions. You certainly don't want Everyone to have access to the shop rates, for instance, eh, let's give this guy a break. That's not up to them. There is a way to control that and lock in workflow too. Pricing, the neglected frontier. Let's explore the magic. Hey, Jeff. Good to see you. Good to see you as well, Jay. How's the week going? It's going well so far. You know, I like to say the first half of the week is Monday, so we're more than halfway there. That means today on Tuesday. So any interesting questions posed to you by some of the users and things that are trying to be done that may not be common, but are interesting and 
solvable now with the P3L technology. Yeah, you know, a common theme or, or trend, I guess, in discussion and, and questions that I'm hearing from customers or feedback that our sales team is bringing in is, you know, times are changing, prices are fluctuating, lack of, of sort of stability in, in that regard. Um, hmm. I think that's what you see online and the news and all that. Uh, so it's no surprise, but a specific question that I got actually today, which is aligned with, with many discussions that I've had recently is, you know, a customer is in the process of evaluating their pricing mechanism, you know, what their rates are, et cetera, what they charge per hour, what they mark up for material. So they're, they're doing a general pricing review. Yeah. It sounds like they're, you know, they sat down as an organization and looked at whatever the past quarter, couple of quarters and made some decisions based on you know the changes that have occurred in the last six months. So they're doing kind of a bulk update. And actually, you know, the question essentially is, they, you know, they've said they've basically gone through and, and updated, this customer uses a material inventory list, and they've updated um, sort of the minimum charges and other inputs in that table that go into their pricing formula already. But they're looking to make a different update to their pricing in bulk uh, as well. And they want to update all of their machine rates uh, for their different work centers you know, mm -hmm. in one pass. How many different machine rates do they have? Like each work center or operation, um, whatever the step might be, it might be like a machining step. It could be a shipping step, something like that could have, you know, one or two hourly rate inputs. It could have like a setup rate, mm -hmm. uh, it could have a, a run rate, or it could even have more rates like a burden rate, whatever. So there could be, you know, four values to change across, I don't know, anywhere from like 30 to say some shops might have 120 work centers or operations. So I don't know if this is something that. Yeah. So like, that's a great question because if you've got, tons of work centers and then you have all those different inputs do you see most people when they're setting up their pricing engine that they embed the shop rates within each operation or do they have a table that or i think table something like a spreadsheet that the p3l calls so that all of those are in one place that's the way that will tend to set things up. And it, it doesn't apply just to like hourly rates for machine centers, but you like, you like tables, tables. Yeah. And actually there, there's a few reasons why. So first and foremost, if you have a ERP system and you have an integration with paperless, we'll basically like, we'll read that information from your ERP system and pull that into a table and paperless parts. And maybe that sync occurs like, every night, or if it's a material table and there's columns like quantity on hand that we need to update more frequently than that from the ERP system, we might do that every hour, every 10 minutes, whatever it might be. But so I want to stop you as I think through some of the implications of what that means. So first of all, that's good because your quoting system is not an island separate from your ERP system. The truth or the source is the ERP system then for all of your, I shouldn't say all, but 
the, the rates that you are pulling from the ERP system. The ERP system is the truth, the source. Yeah, and basically you could set it up whatever way you'd like, but some customers are relying on their ERP system as the source of truth for say, a different example from hourly rates could be, let's talk about the maintenance of just a customer and mm-hmm. contact list. You know, you have an account right. business and then a specific contact at that business. So some people want to create those records in their ERP system and only in their ERP system or vice versa, create them in paperless and them to their ERP system as a certain event occurs, whether it's pushing a quote mm-hmm. out or having an order placed. For all intents and purposes, it's, you know, everything's sort of on the same page where the two systems are talking to one another. And ideally you'd want to read those values off of a table if you had an integration, just so that, mm-hmm. you know, when you're changing them in one place, they're updating in the other. Mm-hmm. But you, integration aside, it'd be great to have a table for any set of values that could be structured that way. Because if you want to update them, all you have to do is, just like you would in a spreadsheet, you know, go in and right. So is that a third way then that somehow a table is created in a different application or let's say even the example of contact info, you could be using the contact relationship management product. If you're a larger company, maybe Salesforce. So it probably depends. I know paperless, it's easy to push information in and out of it. it may depend on your ERP system on how easy it is to push information to them. It's usually easier from what I saw in taking information out of an ERP system, but not always pushing it in. Is that a correct statement? Definitely. Every, I guess, system has its own architecture and it's you know, some enable certain types of communication more than others um, Mm -hmm. for different reasons. And then there's, you know, more well-supported, I guess, ERP system that by design would, you know, just have more resources available for, you know, our team or a shop's team to. So the idea though of tables containing your information is something that can't be underestimated because I'm thinking if it's coded, in P3L in paperless, then each operation or work center needs to be open, the hourly rate changed, for example. And also if the ERP system is driving that data, the same thing, you've got to go in the ERP system and update every operation for the different hourly rates that may be applied there. So if I think about uh, and I'm thinking a table more thinking of a spreadsheet and you would have a row your row is your operation. You got a column of setup rate, hourly rate, and whatever else. It's so much simpler to, even if you're going to change those manually, do it very quickly there. The other though idea is if you, and this would work, for both paperless and for a table, but probably not for an ERP system, is if you had a base rate and you had a formula for that rate. So let's think of like a spreadsheet and your base rate was $75 times the markup or we'll call it the multiplier. So 
And this is what the way I approached it in our pricing. I didn't want to constantly be changing the hourly rates. It would display as a new hourly rate, but I would have a multiplier and we would take that $75, say, and multiply it by, we wanted to raise prices 10%. So we multiply it by 1.1 and get our new hourly rate. And as we raise prices over the years, now maybe it's multiplied by 1.2, 1.25. And you could have that, that global multiplier be a single number at the top of your spreadsheet and every hourly rate when you change that number changes to become a new hourly rate based on the multiplier that you've applied. So that makes it super easy to update prices. However, you're assuming that you want to update your prices by 10% globally. That doesn't necessarily give you the power to do it operation by operation, but certainly even in a table, you have the ability to go in and I guess override a formula. You just have to remember you overrode it. So every time you go back and change your multiplier, that would that would stay static or, or do something that you might not remember. Yeah, that's interesting. And then just think about how that applies to different inputs that go into the estimate. Mm-hmm. So same thing with like removal rates. If you're going to try mm-hmm. to come up with a runtime, you know, maybe you have a base removal rate and then you have some sort of complexity factor that's based off of like the material type so Mm -hmm. uh, like a hardness or machinability rating and you multiply the base rate times that Mm -hmm. or even just the complexity of the part like how complex is it how many you know what is the tolerance on the part Mm -hmm. yeah and things like that so I'm thinking you could even have a material removal rate that's tied to the type of tooling so I don't know, someone comes up with a new cutting tool that is 25% more efficient. So you would have the ability to change your material removal rates and, but there's a cost to that improvement. So you have another table that, that draws upon that and you're not going in and changing material removal rates by hand. It's more of a function of the tooling. This is what I love about the pricing. You can get so granular and so deep into what you think is important and is influencing the costing and or the pricing. Yeah, it you know sounds like we're getting complex here, but really it's just like the sum of a bunch of simple rules. The way mm-hmm. I think about it, you know, having a, a dollar amount next to an operation name isn't very complex, but when you start to put you know, that a dollar amount next to an operation name, a, a multiplier next to a material type or, a, you know, a runtime factor next to a tool type mm-hmm. uh, and add all those things up. You're right. You can get pretty granular and do all of that, make all of those decisions or assessments in the snap of a finger, as opposed to by hand and take an awfully long time to do all of that. So in the use of tables, what percentage of implementations do you think use tables as opposed to embedding it in the 3PL, say for hourly rates for setup and runtime? I'd say 100%. Are you using uh, a table? Yeah, in some capacity. And then 80, only 80% are using it in a you know, large capacity, but it's pretty mm-hmm. much essential to anything that's beyond, I guess, a simple implementation. 
Mm -hmm. uh, there's a time and place for a simple implementation. It doesn't always have to be so complex or intricate, but mm -hmm. like in short, most of our shops are using tables, I guess, every day into their, their formulas. How do you keep track of that as a user of all your different tables? You just click into a tab that's called configure. It looks like a little gear icon. And then mm -hmm. there's a few tabs within that page. And one of them is tables and you know, there are all your tables. And you so, can download them, view them in Excel. You can view them right in paperless, edit them in Excel and upload them back mm -hmm. in paperless. Whatever. You can add more tables or whatever you got to do. So getting back to the customer's original question, they want to update the rates in bulk. So it sounds like they want to change a lot of rates and they want to minimize the time because as you said, the way stuff's going today, they may have to do this again in another month. What have you talked to them yet about that? What approach do you think is going to work? We've talked about a lot of possibilities, but what practically, what do you think is going to be the way for them to do that? Yeah. So this customer in particular, we've, we've worked together before and made uh, similar updates, I guess, to the way they make inputs to their pricing, not in this exact capacity that they're asking for today. But in this case, I'll check and see if they're equipped with the tooling, if you will, to do this in bulk, meaning that we're currently maintaining their hourly rates in a table and, and feeding mm -hmm. them into their pricing that way. So I'll take a look and see if that's the case. And if, if it is, I'll let them know, you know, how to do that themselves in, in case they weren't aware that they could. But if they aren't equipped, which might be the case, I'll set up some time with them and propose that we go in and restructure their operations and read them out of a table. And that way they would be able to do this you know, with ease on their own, I guess, each day if they wanted to or each week. Right. So I'm thinking also, I'm a shop owner. I talked about having this global markup rate, but I don't want a junior estimator to go in and change that in a table? Is there a way to lock that out? Completely. So, yeah. So me, the owner, I'm the only one who can change that. hundred percent. So every account has one or more admins. Um, so that'd be you know, someone that we've identified and, and spoke with and we've made them the admin so mm -hmm. they can edit each user's permissions. And one of those permissions is relating to configuration, which mm. is that page that we talked about earlier where you find your tables and you can limit the ability to view the, that page. So view the formulas and inputs. Mm -hmm. You can limit the ability to edit it, make it read only. So if someone wanted to just read it, you know, they can see the tables, but not change them. You could set them up that way. Or if you, you know, need some people to edit it and others don't have to see it, that's fine as well. And you can set it up that way. We get that question a lot, believe it or not. And I think we've made enhancements to the permissions and we'll probably continue to as uh, time goes. You, you probably need a table for your permissions, right? Well, they're, they're kind of, <laughs> it. they're kind of, it. they're kind of our, I guess, you know, yeah. you go into the teams page and click in to any user. You can see what their permissions are. Thinking of that, I'm, I'm moving into a different area, but thinking about that is, do you, when you're setting up users and thus every user you, you're setting up permissions, do people generally set up a named individual or do they 
set up a department perhaps as a user and why or why not would you want to do each of those methods if, if indeed they are being used both ways? I guess there's cases where you would want to do one or the other, but most and probably 90% of the users are specific people. So it'll be, you know, Jeff, you know, it'll have a job title and my email address associated with the login. And that's beneficial for a couple of reasons. One, you get to, to track like activity on that person. So you can see how many parts did Jeff upload? How many quotes did he make? How many orders, et cetera? How mm. long did it typically take him to draft and send a quote? Mm. All that good stuff. And then you also get the, all the audit trail. If you're familiar with that. So I know what an audit trail is. I think more typically of accounting, but what is the system doing for an audit trail here? So for like every action that's important, if you will, for lack of a better term is logged. It'll say, you know, so-and-so updated this value from $95 to $92. It'll say, you know, John drafted this quote or so-and-so facilitated this order on, you know, this date at this time. And okay. people often have questions like if a quote goes out with a bad number or right, who put it out or too high, who, who put that out there? How did that get there? Maybe it was a mistake. I mean, you want to be able to tell if that was a result of your formula or if someone made the decision to type that in and, mm -hmm. and why. So having that is beneficial. If you had just kind of a generic login, you wouldn't, and a few people were using it, you wouldn't be able to pinpoint yeah. what, what that was. I think not so much the estimating, but there were tools that we would employ on the shop floor at Rapid where we would say, have a generic break department login as opposed to every user having their own login. But it was more for typically read access of information. So people on the floor couldn't edit it, but they could find information that they needed so they didn't have to go into the offices and ask somebody for permission to get the drawing if it wasn't in the folder, that sort of thing. Yeah. And in some cases that would mean you're, you're getting around, I guess, having like multiple seats, but. I didn't think it, it, it was more, and this is more shop floor stuff. It wasn't getting around multiple seats. It was more, we didn't want the admin of setting up users and keeping track of them in the break department. There, yeah. there was no, real added value, I guess, for an audit trail. We sort of knew who was working on the job in other ways. Any other interesting questions that popped up over the last week? Uh, no, you know, nothing, nothing specific to call out. Things are always interesting. So it's hard to isolate any one thing, but this definitely jumped out just with it kind of being, you know, what we just talked about, mm -hmm. need to increase rates and you know, values that are driving your prices. Yeah. No secret that's going on with prices going up for pretty much everything. But uh, Well, I will share that before we leave this topic, we on a daily basis and the general manager had the control would slightly manipulate the pricing based upon the capacity uh, of the shop to take in new work the time of year, perhaps all these different factors. And, and now we didn't see the inflation that we're seeing now, but it 
allowed the general manager who had the profit and loss responsibility to manipulate the pricing slightly to be in line with what they saw happening in their own shops. And that was a really valuable lever for them. The other cool thing was you, if you have that responsibility, you want to understand how your pricing is being calculated and to be able to look into the different parts of it if you really wanted to have that knowledge of what is creating the end price is huge. And even if you are not going to go modify a pricing engine yourself, but if you're seeing something is happening in a particular area that doesn't make sense, you can do a little bit of homework and then approach somebody who perhaps is more knowledgeable or if it's a paperless, call paperless and ask them to help you out. Yeah. On that vein, I wanted to ask kind of, you know, what, what you've been doing in the past or what, what your thoughts are in regards to data-driven decision-making and just like data in general. I think like we often get into a conversation around pricing theory, if you will. So, you know, concepts like manipulating price based on, you know, times changing or forecasted demand and need, I guess, or, or ability in the shop. Mm-hmm. But like, how do you actually make those decisions? And how do you, what did that require when, when you were doing that at Rapid? Like, what did you have to, to have in place? Well, like, how did you even come up with the basis to make the decision to, you know, increase that rate by 0.1 or 10%, whatever the decision that day was? That's a good question. And I think that every shop, if you really, dig deep, there's two or three or four metrics that you know, you look at that trend and that tells you what's going on in your shop. And sometimes it's intuition. You're walking around as an owner, you, what you see on the shop floor or the pile of folders that are orders that need to be entered in the office. These intangible things what you want to do those is get that into data and the first part though is to figure out what are those two three four items that you want to report really easily and one of them for machining that i think is important is to separate your machining work into different buckets An example is to have simple complexity parts, medium complexity parts, and high complexity parts. And if you are measuring the percentage, both in terms of number of jobs and the number of estimated hours for each bucket, there's probably a range you want to be in. And if you are bumping out of a range, particularly if you have too many hours or dollars, probably more hours for high complexity jobs, then you would want to do something so you don't win more high complexity jobs for a while. And how do you collect that data? Because it probably exists, but you want to make it easy. Thinking of those 
the best place to collect it is when you're starting to estimate. And if you then are totally integrated with your ERP system, you can look at your quotes versus orders, your estimated hours versus uh, out one hours versus actual hours on the job. And you can start to, and, and I always think hours are, are probably one of those metrics in one way or another. That's a super way to start thinking about how data can be helpful. Here's a good one. Knowing how many hours a day or week that a spindle is running on a machining center. And then globally in your shop, how many spindle hours are you putting out per day, per week? If you can collate that information really easily, then you can see a trend over time. And let's say though you've doubled your number of machining centers in your shop, well, obviously your spindle time's gonna go up, but then maybe the way you look at it is you divide it by the number of machining centers. And maybe you even weight different machining centers by their throughput capability. But in this case, it's then there's companies out there that allow you to collect the, the actual time that a spindle's turning. And that's really, if a spindle's turning, it's making you money. If it's not, then it's overhead at that moment. And one of the things that I found fascinating, it's, it's almost scary, Jeff is to measure this in your shop because I was astonished. We were running three shifts at Rapid and I was astonished with how low our spindle time was for a 24 hour shift. I think it was actually less than one shift that the average machine spindle was turning. And you think about it, okay, I've got to buy more machining centers because I'm running out of capacity to make parts. And then you look at it, you go, well, I'm only running my machining centers at a third capacity. Why don't I run them at two thirds capacity and I won't have to buy machines for quite a while. It all starts from the collection of data. Interesting. So that's all good and great, but again, it's hard, right? To get, I guess, the systems in place to do all that. How have you seen that change as of recently? more accessible, more people doing it? Is it easier? What I would like to do, I think this is a great topic and I think we could spend a whole episode jumping into this and exploring it from a whole bunch of different ways. So are you okay with us pushing that off to the next time we talk? Totally. Yeah, I agree. Actually, we've been talking for quite a while now. (laughs) We could talk about that next time. To give give a listener what I want to, go over with you Jeff though is you know there's a lot of data out there where is it how can you access it what are larger companies doing I always think you know you want to emulate larger companies the challenges reporting of data the the ways that you that, that companies that we know are using shops are using data now ways that are possible to use data with the data that we know is out there but maybe is not being collected and reported on all these different possibilities because what data ends up giving you is a it's a tool to make a more informed decision it doesn't mean that you're going to always run with the decision that the data gives you but it helps you make a more informed decision and 
as long as you don't get overwhelmed by the data, it's a good thing. So we can jump into that next time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And one quick thing I want to add, you mentioned accessible or I would, I would say leverageable data. Like if it's not in the right shape or mm. format, I guess everything at the end of the day is data, like an email is data, but if, it, if you can't go and count those up in yeah. across your team or across your organization, that's not necessarily useful data. So it's not really a tool. So it's important to, to keep track of what, you know, is, right. is usable and not. So we got a lot more to talk about in that department. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. And this is so much fun. Thanks for sharing of that customer story. And I'm going to, I'm going to think about that one a little more. Yeah. All right. Until next time, what do we say? Keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a great day, guys. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. So future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.